The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Peppy. I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, guys, the West Virginia Mountaineers upset the 22nd-ranked Iowa State Cyclones 38-31. to The Cyclones dropped to a 5-3 and record, while WVU is now a 500 football team at 4-4. Four and four. This was a huge win for the Mountaineers, inching closer to that sixth win, which will make West Virginia Bowl eligible. How do you feel about this football team after two straight solid performances? Oh, man, it's like night and day, um, two completely different teams. Um, you know, that Baylor game before the bye week, um, it just seems like everything fell apart and we were figured out and the season was over. We had the bye week and two great wins, um, kind of in different different fashions. TCU, more of a, you know, slow them down, grind them out sort of game. And Iowa State just going out there and, you know, putting on an offensive show. Um, most points we scored other than the LIU game this season. Um you know, I have to imagine it's one of the highest scoring seasons during Neil Brown's career. I'm not exactly sure on that, but it has to be up there. Yeah, that was the most encouraging thing that the offense uh, finally got back on track. I mean, they, they were back on track the TCU game, but this was by far their best offensive output. And the most encouraging thing was this is back-to-back wins that were team efforts. It seemed like when the defense gave up early touchdown drives, the offense drove down the field to tie it up. When the offense threw an interception late in the second quarter, the defense forced a punt. It just seemed like each time a unit need picked up by their teammates that they did. And that's what you have to do to be a successful football team. You have to lift up your teammates when they're struggling. And we finally look like a complete football team now. Definitely. I agree with that 100%. So let's get into the offense since it was so encouraging. If you just look at the numbers uh i mean this was far better than tcu on paper we converted nine of 15 third downs one for one on fourth down and the biggest thing the thing we talk about every week the red zone success in the red zone five times they come away with four touchdowns and one field goal so they made the most of those opportunities when they got down there and very similar to the tcu game time of possession 34 to 25 wvu beat uh, Iowa State in the time of possession. And that's huge because I think it it gives our defense a rest. And uh, the defense is looking like the exact opposite. Um, instead of fading late, they seem to be getting stronger late in games. And I think that is because they're, they're getting a bit of a rest. And uh, let's prop up <laughs> Coach Moore, who we've been rough on lately. We said a few weeks ago that Coach Moore's performance should be under review these last six games. And as of now, he's passing the test. The offensive line has greatly improved over these past two weeks. So give credit to Coach Moore and that offensive line for showing progress. Obviously, there, there's there's still games left, and he still has to be improving. You know, they can't regress in some of these final games. But uh, props to Coach Moore because the offensive line deserved criticism, and we gave it to him. But, hey, they're playing well now. So props to them. Yeah, definitely. And – you know, I don't think it's all offensive line either. I think that they've improved. Um, I wouldn't go out there and say that they're a completely different union. They still have their flaws, but the whole offense is playing really well together as a team. 
So the scheme is helping the offensive line look better with the run game, you know, showing more variation. Um, Deggy is showing better pocket presence. He's throwing the ball away instead of trying to force things. Um, so, you know, that's it just kind of like you said, it just goes to show how valuable that team effort is. Um, on the topic of, of run variation, um, it was awesome. Uh, so we ran 10 RPOs that game that ended up being a, a, a handoff, averaged about six yards per play on that. Um, we also had seven counters, um, three outside zones, um, two what I would consider kind of trap plays where we're running up the middle with a, a pulling tight end in this instance and a couple outside toss plays. Um, and, and it's a complete deviation from what we were doing traditionally, which was lining up in shotgun and just handing it up off the middle occasionally on the outside. Um, and, you know, just to kind of go to show, the ver- we also saw more formations this game. So traditionally we always see empty and shotgun. This game we saw four different primary formations with different personnel groupings. Um, we had 12 plays that we ran out of empty, 32 out of shotgun. But the biggest change was that we ran 20 plays out of the pistol where we had 13 rushes for 77 yards. And of those 13 rushes, 11 plays were RPOs. Uh, we also had one play action off of that. Um, so the passing game wasn't as effective. We did only go three for seven for 41 yards and two interceptions. Um, the interceptions weren't really Deggie's fault. But, you know, it just kind of going to show you that just that little wrinkle there can open up the offense so much more. Yeah, yeah, I love what they're doing with the offense. It definitely looks completely different. Not just execution, but like you said, they, they're, they're definitely calling different types of plays. And they're not as predictable, which... Of course, execution is the biggest part of an offense, but also not showing your hand before you even call hut is huge too. And I feel like they've done that very well these past two weeks. So let's talk about some of these performances. Jared Daigie had a career high of 370 yards and three touchdowns. He had two interceptions, but that first one was clearly Bryce Ford Wheaton's fault. I'm sure he would even tell you that. The second one was a really bad decision, but uh, you know, you're going to get maybe one really bad decision every game. That's just how it is when you have college kids playing. So uh, props to Jared Daigie. I mean, the kid's taking a ton of criticism this year. He always says the right thing and uh, he, he's fighting through that. So props to him, but also the wide receivers for the second time this season, two wide receivers went over 100 yards in the same game. Bryce Ford Wheaton with 106 and Winston Wright with 100. And Deggie did a nice job of spreading the football around for the second straight game as well. It's nice to see everybody contributing. Not only did six different wide receivers register a catch, but Letty Brown had five catches. And shout out to TJ Banks. The tight end had his first three catches of the season. And he made some nice plays on Saturday without a doubt. Yeah, and... Uh, you left off one person, uh, probably my favorite receiver, Isaiah Esdale. Six catches for 61 yards, so that means we had three receivers with six or more receptions. Um, yeah, the receivers look great, and I, I love the way that Deggie's able to sling the ball out to different receivers um, and, and spread the ball around. You know, he's not just staring down one guy and trying to force-feed him the ball. Um, you know, and we're getting open more, too, uh, not only down the field, but all over the field. So we had 12 completions under 10 yards 12 completions between 10 and 20 yards and five completions over 20 yards that's a really good balance there because the defense can't just creep up they can't just play back they have to 
they just have to play and match up. And I, I think our receivers, like Neil Brown says, are our most talented group of guys. So, you know, having that variation, um, combining that with the running game, running some play actions and RPOs, which we ran six play actions that game and three RPO passes, um, you know, it just opens things up. And on those play actions and RPOs, um, we had we went six for nine for 86 yards, two touchdowns, and one interception, which, which was the Bryce Ford Wheaton drop. So on nine plays, two touchdowns, 86 yards. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely mixing it up a lot, which I love. And uh, shout out to Letty Brown as well. Letty Brown had his third 100-yard game of the season, and this is back-to-back weeks with 100 yards for Letty. And if you look at the amount of carries he's getting, that shouldn't come as no surprise. He had 24 carries at TCU, 22 carries versus Iowa State. I think his touches per game are increasing because West Virginia is eating up that time of possession, and they are uh, using him more in the red zone, which is resulting in more points per game. So, I mean, keep feeding him down there in the red zone. It's working. Even when we're throwing for touchdowns, just um, having him being used a lot, I think it's making the defense not, um, you know, not they have to respect it. Whereas I feel like at the beginning of the year, they were kind of just hanging back, waiting for the pass. So I hope to see his carries stay somewhere in the 20s for the remainder of the season, because this is the first time he had 20 plus carries all year was in the TCU game and Iowa State game. Yeah, definitely. And we're still seeing that, like you said, in the red zone, that the run game is king for us. Um, You know, six runs, two touchdowns out of about 10 plays in the red zone. Um, Only one of the touchdown passes were technically in the red zone. It was exactly on the 20. So the point that we've made in the past about you know, Jared Deggie not necessarily being a, an efficient red zone quarterback still stands, even though um, he has looked he looked extremely good um, this past game with all three of his touchdown passes being 20 yards or longer. Um, to touch on a point that you talked about earlier with the time of possession, um, I looked at how many plays per possession because we talked about last week how if WVU was going to be successful, we had to be patient and methodical driving down the field. So on plays – on every single drive that we had, we averaged 6.4 plays per possession. Iowa State averaged 5.1 plays per possession. But on scoring plays, we averaged eight plays per scoring possession. Um, so it just goes to show that, you know, when we're rolling, we're rolling. And, we're you know, we're, we're not trying to be someone else. We're not trying to throw bombs and set up the defense. We're just trying to run our offense, you know, kill the clock, keep possession, and drive the ball down the defense's throat and win the game yeah and I like the fact that they are taking deep shots from time to time and that probably does go back to the fact that they are getting more uh protection and given those wide receivers time to run those deep routes downfield but it's working um so definitely keep taking those shots because those wide receivers can make those plays absolutely and you know this kind of goes into like the, the offenses look completely different after the bye week and um, there's been a lot of talk, um, you know, in the press conferences about who's calling plays now. And I don't think we've gotten a straight answer, but this answer seems to be that it's Parker now. Um, and if it's been Parker the past two weeks. It's looked great. I mean, it's still a very similar playbook to what Brown was running before. So I don't think it's completely Parker's schematics and maybe what he wants to run. But the play calling and the situational play calling and the the scheming, uh, the simplification of the offense and doing a little bit more things, even though, 
you're not doing anything more complex um, has been great and it's been effective. Um, you know, but I just think it's been amazing to see how big of a turnaround we had because, you know, this time three weeks ago, we were talking about who's our quarterback, who do we need to replace on the offensive line? Um, should we start playing more young guys at wide receiver? The whole thing was on the table and now it seems like we're getting people back on board. Um, what do you think about the, the offensive play calling? Yeah, uh, Coach Brown's definitely being a little hush-hush about it in these press conferences. Like, uh, But the rumor is, yeah, other people are – someone else is calling the plays, which, I mean, if you just see it, how the play calls look, it, it does seem different. Granted, these past two games were after a bye week. Um, but, yeah, it does seem like someone else is calling the plays, and I don't think that's a knock on Coach Brown at all. In fact, I think it shows his maturity as he's – um, getting more years under his belt as being a coach. I think a good head coach should delegate and give that job to the offensive coordinator. You guys pay someone to be the offensive coordinator. Let that guy call plays. Of course, you can have input as the head coach, and Neil Brown's always been more of an offensive uh, guy when, when he's coaching. So, of course, he's going to want input. But, yeah, give someone else that duty, and, and it it shows that it's working. One, Not only are the plays working, but you're not seeing as many – at least in Iowa State, in that game, you weren't seeing all these just random timeouts. We didn't see a ton of, you know, plays where we're shooting ourselves in the foot and digging ourselves in the hole. So I think it's working as a whole. Keep it up. Yeah, I was just going to say that, too, is that, you know, kind of another pile on top of that, I guess, conspiracy theory is, you know, we're more disciplined. We're not calling bad timeouts. And another thing I was thinking about, too, is, you know, since Brown kind of has to manage the whole team um, and, you know, the play calling on top of that can get a little tricky, that could lead to more delay games. Um, it also might lead to some of those kind of um, issues with substitutions, issues with kind of being very simplistic on offense, not trying to design more, you know, variation in the plays and formations. Because primarily before we were running almost exclusively uh, in between the 20s, shotgun, and empty sets. Um, we didn't really start running that eye formation until we were in the, the red zone, but now we're seeing, you know, all four of the, the formations that we use all over the field and we, we added the pistol. So, um, you know, delegating that duty allows us to get a little bit more creative, switch things up and not be as predictable. So um, this is all speculative, but, you know, I think all signs point to Brown not calling plays anymore. And that's a good thing. I mean, um, especially when it means that we're being more disciplined, we're having good use of our timeouts, um, and everything's just going well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, yeah, just keep it up. I mean, people were saying at the beginning of the year of the year that if coach Parker is not good enough to call plays then why is he there? Well, he's got the opportunity. And if it's him again, this is all speculation. He's doing a nice job. So, I mean, uh, uh whatever they're, they're doing different. I'm glad. I'll just leave it at that. You ready to get into the defense? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So West Virginia's defense, you know, they gave up a lot of points, but I'm going to say props to the defense. This is the second highest point total um, that they've given up all season. Of course, Baylor was the worst, but um, I don't think that's indicative of how well they played. I thought early on there were certainly concerns, the long touchdown run, the blown assignment on coverage, which led to a touchdown, but the offense kept them in the game and uh, credit to the defense because they pitched a shutout in the fourth quarter when it mattered the most. Uh, that's that's a tough offense they went up against. Brees Hall had a good day, of course, 
but I thought they contained Purdy for the most part. He had some of those scrambles late in the game. Um, but that's that's not the ideal game for the defense. But they certainly contributed to a hard-fought win. Um, what do you think about the defense's performance? I thought they were great. I mean, especially with the defensive line's dominance. It, it was just incredible to see how much we affected the game just by getting penetration, just by, you know, disrupting in the backfield. Um, you know, the, the one thing that I thought was interesting is that they averaged 2.5 yards per play on third down, Iowa State did. Um, however, on first and second down, they averaged over five yards per play. So on second down, they were around seven yards per play. On first down, they were 9.25 yards per play, but that was inflated by the two long TV TDs. When you take those out, they're at about five yards per play. But, you know, they were at, at an average of third and seven on their third downs. As you, uh, I think you said, they were two for 12 on third downs. And that's kind of the key to the bend, but don't break defense is, you know, you let some yards on first down, you let some yards in second down, but in third down, you you buckle down and you get pressure. You find different ways to disrupt. Um, you play a little bit softer, which we're known to do, and keep people in front of you and make tackles. And I feel like we're a good tackling team across the board. So um, that strategy works. And even though sometimes it gets a little scary um, because there's, you know, you can get caught up and, um, you know, end up with your back against the wall and have to make a play at the goal line. But yeah, it, it was just a great defensive performance. Um, another interesting thing that I saw too is that out of 10, so I, they had, I would say had 12 total possessions. So I took the two long ones out of there because they kind of threw everything off. But out of their 10 possessions, they only made it past the 50 yard line four times. Um, that resulted in two scores, one field goal, one touchdown, uh, the fumble, and a punt. Um, so of those four times, three times they were in the red zone, which was the field goal, the touchdown, and the punt. So 40% getting past the 50, that's pretty good. And that means that, you know, our defense is doing what it needs to do. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, two for 12 on third down. Anytime your defense can get your opponent off the field 10 times when that opportunity occurs, I mean, that that's fantastic. And look at how they shut down some of their key players. We already said Hall had a nice game, but I mean, if you look at how that guy's performed throughout the season, there's not too many teams who can say that they slowed him down. But when it came to the passing game, Kohler, who we, we talked about last week, we were kind of scared of. He had one catch for 10 yards. Hutchinson had six catches, but if you look, he only had 51 yards off that, so not a lot of damage done. Purdy only had 185 passing yards, and we sacked him twice. Um, so props to the defense, Josh Chandler, Semedo, he has been fantastic these past two games. Once again, he was all over the field and led the team in tackles with nine and even had one of our two sacks. Um, Alonzo Adai, he had some head scratcher plays early in the game and I think Adai has been pretty solid all year. So, um, you know, everyone's going to have a bad game occasionally, but he came up big. When it mattered the most, he's the one who recovered that fumble in the end zone. And sure, I mean, it, it was right there for him to get. But hey, being in the right place at the right time, that's that's part of playing defense. So uh, props to our defense. Like we said, 31 points, that's that's not like us to give up that many points. But uh, I think it's, it's deceiving. I think they had a nice game. Yeah, definitely. And, and a couple notes on the stats that you presented. So... Um, Hall had 24 for 167, but if you take out that 70-yard TD run, he was at 23 for 97 yards. So he didn't crack 
100 without that. That's 3.8 yards per carry. I consider that a success. Yeah. Um, for Purdy, if you take away his long touchdown pass, he actually only passed for 117 yards. Um, so that's incredible. Um, a, a couple other things I noticed, too, is that um, we've talked about in the past how our linebackers are just really poor in coverage. Um, and I noticed that Lance Dixon, the redshirt sophomore transfer from Penn State, he had a really good game. Um, he was covering tight ends and uh, running backs, and he did a pretty good job on him, um, you know, at least for a linebacker. And, and in college, you can't find too many linebackers who are decent in coverage. So it was great to see that. Um, another interesting stat for Purdy is that uh, I'll let you guess this one. How many completions do you think that Iowa State had over 10 yards? Mm, I feel like you're going to say one, but I'll say two. Three. Three. A 12-yard, a 17-yard, and a 68-yard. So out of 27 attempts, 16 completions, three over 10 yards. That's incredible. Um, so I, I just thought that was really interesting. And then as far as the running game goes, um, just over half of Iowa State's rushing attempts went for three yards or less. So 16 out of 30 rushes were for three yards or less, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. Props to uh, Charles Woods and Porter once again for having, and they both had back-to-back very good games. And um, that's huge because uh, pass coverage has been very sketchy in some of the earlier games this year. You know how I love... I love to bring up special teams. Props to Tyler Sumter. He averaged 44 yards per punt on Saturday. And uh, I don't believe any of his punts got returned as well. So 44 yards, flipping the field every time he got an opportunity. And I saw he was up for the Ray Guy punter of the week. So go vote for him if uh, if it still lets you. I voted for him yesterday. Props to the kid for having a great performance. And honestly, he's been great all year. I want to call out two more players on the defense, too. I thought Jackie Matthews was really good in coverage. Um, he had some nice blitzes where he pressured the quarterback, but the play that really impressed me was that play down, that pass downfield to Kohler, where he jumped up and broke it up. Mm-hmm. Um, just incredible uh, for someone who's not six foot six, 260 pounds. Um, and then my last one would be Bartlett. I, I think that he was really noticeable this game. Um, he was in the backfield a lot. Um, whether it was a run play or pass play, he didn't always finish. I think he only had one tackle, but him just getting back there and disrupting is valuable. And that's something that we haven't seen too much of him since the VTech game. I know he's had his moments, but seeing him out there creating havoc is just awesome. It is. Yeah. It, it seemed like he had a stretch of games there where you, you didn't hear his name or, or see him too often. Uh, because he tore up that Virginia tech game. And then honestly, until the TCU game, I didn't, I didn't see him make too many uh, big impact plays. So, yeah, he'll definitely be important this Saturday. So I hope he keeps it up. Definitely. Um, let's get into the special notes because a lot of stuff went on this week. Um, <laughs> before, we, uh, before we jump to that, uh, I want to kind of talk about um, the controversies from the game. Um, so as both West Virginia and Iowa State know, uh, the officiating was terrible, um, especially <laughs> in the second half. There were a number of questionable calls. And so I went through and I kind of broke down how it affected the game. So, um, you know, the big one for West Virginia was that Bryce Ford Wheaton pass interference. That was definitely not an offensive push off. And it probably led to a 14 point swing. I mean, he caught that ball, what, inside the 25. 
Uh, yeah, he was down at the 10. The 10, yeah, so mm-hmm. even better. Um, and then next play, pick six. Um, so that was a 14-point swing against WVU. Um, the next ones are kind of for Iowa State. So there was the delay game, which I can't tell if it was an actual delay game or not. On TV, it was a delay game. I couldn't see any of the field clock, so I can't determine if it was. But that was a seven-point swing for West Virginia. Um, they do say that the TV clock is normally a second, a solid second different from the actual, yeah. actual play clock. But, I mean, we might have got away with one. I don't know. And I was watching the players' reactions and the coaches' reactions from Iowa State, and no one seemed like they were freaking out or like, you know, walking off the field um, on that play. So, you know, I kind of tend to think that the refs aren't that blind that they let a full second tick off. Um, so, you know, but that kind of led to a seven point swing if that was right. Um, I do think that it was really hard to determine if Hall fumbled in the end zone. So I'll give Iowa State that one. That took seven points off the board for them. Um, and then there was uh, a pass interference call that Iowa State fans call uh, complained about, which was uh, a first down, or it led to a first down on a third and 14. Um, however, that happened on the same drive as the right TD. So if we're wiping off the right TD, we're wiping off that. Um, and then Iowa State had their drive extended on a second down on a questionable pass interference call um, against West Virginia. And then on finally, um, if you follow our Twitter page, you'll see the video I posted where Purdy scrambled, fell down inbounds and shorter the marker and the clock kept running. So the ref made the right call and then they had a false start. Iowa State had one play left and they could not complete it. So all in all, you know, I think it's a wash. It's about, you know, minus 21 points for West Virginia, minus 21 points for Iowa State. So, I mean, it's within the, the rounding error of what officials make mistakes on and um, you know, all in all, it just kind of goes to show you that, you know, if you just play the game, don't worry about what the officials are doing, things are going to average out. I mean, if things are getting that bad, then, you know, the refs are going to get in trouble. Someone's going to step in and do something, but it was bad all the way around and it was a close game. And I don't think it really affected the, the game at all. Um, just because of how bad it was all the way around. Yeah. I mean, the referees have a difficult job. I have some of this in my good, bad, and hope at the end of the show, so I'll save some of it, but uh, I don't want to pile on them too much, but yeah, that was not the best performance from the Big 12 referees. Uh, but like you said, it's it's not like either team was getting, you know, all the all the bad calls against them or all the good calls for them. It, it seemed to, to go both ways, but oh my God, if you were on Twitter or any social media... <laughs> The Iowa State fans were losing their mind, but uh, we've yeah. been on the other side of that, so I didn't feel too bad for them. Yeah, Iowa State has one good year, and now they think that they can get the calls that Texas does. <laughs> Still in the same boat with us, buddies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Join the club, pal. All right, so uh, let's get into the special notes. We have some bad news to start, and then we'll finish on a good note. Uh, the first thing, two Mountaineer players are out for the season, unfortunately. Junior Nick Troy Fortune is done for the year. Coach Brown said at his press conference he has a leg injury. And redshirt junior Michael Laughlin is done as well with a leg injury. So uh, how will these injuries impact the Mountaineers? What do you think? Um, I actually don't feel too bad about them. The O'Laughlin injury I probably am worried about the most just because we don't seem to have a lot of depth at the tight end position. I know we had, um, I can't remember his name, someone else put taking snaps there Saturday. 
We also had Parker Moore, who um, was our starting right tackle, but now Milam has taken over there. Um, he was taking some snaps at tight end um, occasionally as well. Um, so definitely thin at tight end, and I think we'll miss him. But TJ Banks, you know, the past couple of games, he's been good. Um, you know, he had three catches yesterday, and he ran hard. He blocked well. Um, I felt he blocked well in the previous games that I saw him play in. Um, so, you know, I'm excited to see him get more opportunities because I think he's capable of doing the job, and he's physical. I love that. Um, for Fortune, I'm just excited to see Charles Woods more because it seems like with Woods on the field, our pass defense is better. The past two games going up against, I would say, at least above average pass offenses, our pass defense is held tight. And prior to that, we've struggled at times against the pass. So, you know, it's a one or two person difference. It might be that Charles Woods is just a more capable, you know, pass defender. Um, I do think Nick, Nick Troy Fort, Fortune was probably one of our better tacklers in the secondary behind maybe Mahone. Um, so we might lose a little bit there as far as tackling goes. But coverage wise, I think we could use Woods. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, uh, they're both good players. Fortune um, was a starter. O'Loughlin was a starter. But like you said, I think Woods is very capable of filling in in the starter role. I think Banks is very capable of filling in. Uh, but the only problem is, and, and you touched on it, we're, we're kind of, we don't have a lot of depth at either one of those positions. Secondary, we're short. Tight end, we're short. So, I think that's the biggest hit. And plus, I just feel bad for those guys. I mean, they're, they're juniors. It's not like they have, you know, three years ahead of them to play. And so I feel bad that they're they're going to miss practically a, a whole half of a season. So, um, but overall, like we said, I, there, there are guys who can step up and have stepped up and playing well in their spot. So kind of mixed feelings on that. Um, next up, TCU and Gary Patterson mutually agree to part ways. Jerry Kill will serve as the interim coach. I think it's safe to say Gary Patterson probably didn't make this decision. Um, they might have said you can coach the rest of the year, and he stepped away. But obviously, I don't think Patterson wanted to leave. So what are your thoughts on this news? I was really shocked that it happened in the middle of the season. I mean, for someone who's been out of school for 20 years, you know, I feel like this is something that's better to let play out for the end of the year, have some sort of conversation, you know, during the season that says like, you know, we, we want you to leave at the end of the year, but you know, we want to make it work. We want to let you finish it out. Let us make an announcement that you're retiring or something. Um, because then it's going to give your players something to play for too. You can help choose your successor. You can kind of do what Bob Stoops did, even though he did kind of it, did it kind of unexpectedly when he hired Lincoln, Lincoln Riley. But um, I think it's a better look for everyone when that happens. Um, I'm not sure what happened here. I don't know if it's something that Patterson did. I don't know if TCU just, <laughs> didn't want want anything to do with them anymore. Um, they're just too disappointed by what was going on with the team. But, you know, just a kind of strange situation. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think it was just 2017. They were in the Big 12 championship. So it's not like, you know, he's strung together like eight terrible seasons or anything like that. And look at all the success he's had there. Coach Patterson was the head coach since 2000. He led them to 17 bowl appearance appearances and won 11 of those so it wasn't like he was just making it to bowl games he was winning some big bowl games and uh, I might be speaking out of turn because this isn't my team I don't follow them as closely as their fans do um, but I, I, I know our buddy at the Purple Theory podcast Grant was kind of saying 
this might be expected that TCU fans were kind of over Gary Patterson. Obviously, I don't think any of their fans wanted him to leave this way. But uh, I do feel like they were kind of getting at the end of the Patterson era. But, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I feel like TCU fans, you should be careful what you ask for. Because look at programs like Texas uh, when they forced out Mac Brown. Look at Tennessee when they kind of forced out Philip Fulmer. Um, you could go on and on. Even Michigan when they made Lloyd Card leave. And then they got Rich Rod and Brady Hoke. I mean, look at how all those teams had very long stretches of down years and they've really never been the same. Even Texas, I would argue hasn't been the same since Mac Brown left. And so uh, Patterson put that team on the map. They were nobodies in the WAC conference when he took over and he made that university relevant again. So I don't know. I wish it would have worked out differently. I hope it works out for both parties. Um, But yeah, the news was a little surprising for sure. Yeah, and I, to kind of build on your point about, you know, what other schools tend to do, I, I kind of think that for a school the size of like a TCU or even for WVU, if you can get a coach who can go out there and give you a 10 or 11 win season every four years, I think that's a coach you hang on to. Um, as long as you're not having lows of, you know, three or four win seasons, which I'm not sure what the low of Gary Patterson was, but I, I don't think it's been less than six. He might have had a five win season in there somewhere, but, um, you know, that's acceptable. I mean, if you're a mediocre team during the, the rebuilding years and then you have a good year where maybe you're outside the top 10 fighting for the top five, that's great. I mean, that's where you want to be. Um, it's really hard to build up a program kind of like Dabu did in uh, Clemson, um, even though Clemson was never kind of a small school. They've always had good coaches and a good athletic department. Um, but, you know, to, to get into the room like Clemson has recently is something that's kind of new. Um it's hard to build that up. And it took Dabo, what, 10 years to get there. So um, it takes time and it takes, you know, swimming through the bottom and working your way up through the top. So um, that's kind of why we said on here a lot that stick with Neil Brown, obviously expect improvements, expect change, but give him, give him five years. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely have to have realistic expectations. If you're not Bama or some of these top teams, Ohio state, who seems to be, up there uh, in the top 10 every single year, then you have to expect having some stretches of down years here and there. That's, that just comes with the territory of not being elite. Um, but yeah, like I said, I don't think our buddy Grant or any other TCU fan wanted it to end this way. This just feels like it left a bitter taste in everyone's mouth, not just TCU fans, but even us who are WVU fans and have seen what Gary Patterson has done to that program. I mean, it's not like we root for any Big 12 team to, to you know have to start over and and not be good football teams we want to play quality opponents every year so like i said i just hope it works out for both sides yeah and then um i had one thing for you um i want to talk briefly about the the college football playoff which was just announced um my thoughts on it are that um it feels like the smaller schools are kind of getting shafted again um you know oklahoma and the big 12 undefeated um, Big 12 kind of getting shafted again, like is tradition with us. Uh, always seems like Oklahoma kind of gets in the last minute when no one else is undefeated. Um, and then Cincinnati at six when they're undefeated with a, a nice win against Notre Dame. You know, I would definitely think that they should be in at four at least over Oregon, who's lost to Stanford. And then even in the top 25 where you have teams like Pitt, who just lost, um, 
Mississippi State, who has three losses, Wisconsin, who has three losses in the top 25 ever teams, like Coastal Carolina, you know, Louisiana, UTSA, who is undefeated as well. I didn't know that until today. Um, it's just really interesting, and it, it kind of shows a bias from a group that, in reality, should be unbiased because the playoff, you know, if we ever would expand, we need to have faith that they're going to look at some of these smaller schools and give them an opportunity because if we would go to 16 teams, you don't want to see 16 power five teams. You want to see maybe 10 and see some six of the smaller school and see what happens. Yeah. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how most people feel about playoff expansion, but this would definitely be a good argument for it. Even if they did expand, I don't think I would want to see it expand too much. Maybe, uh, maybe six games and then give the top two a bye week I don't know. It's, it's hard decisions to make. I don't have a problem with the top three for sure. Uh, Georgia, Bama, and Michigan State, they're all undefeated. They all play tough teams. So I don't have a problem with those three. After that, you could make arguments. I don't have a problem with Oregon being four, but you could absolutely make an argument for um, Ohio State, for definitely Cincinnati, who's undefeated, but you could argue has a weaker schedule. Um, so yeah, I mean, when you're only allowing four in you're someone's going to be left out, who's got a good case for being in there. So I don't know. It's so early and there's still a lot of football left as well. So who knows? It could change. Yeah. And I'm hoping that once the big 12 does expand back to 12 after Texas and Oklahoma leaves that we don't get treated kind of like, um, you know, these other conferences do the AACs and other smaller conferences, even though that we are kind of more of a traditional big conference, um, we're losing our two biggest money schools. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about in the long run is, you know, if we would have a good season, are we going to get shafted because we're not an SEC or the ACC or, or, or whatever? Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely going to be the big East all over again when some of those big schools left. Once, once all of this gets figured out in the big 12, I think that's essentially what we're going to be. You're going to have a lot of fun football. We're going to, Uh, be able to compete because there's no like super elite teams in there like Oklahoma, but uh, you're also going to probably get left out of the party occasionally, which, uh, you know, seemed to happen from time to time those last few years in the big East. Yeah. Those were fun years though. Um, They were. I definitely wouldn't trade them for anything. Yeah. I mean, the more I think about the new big 12, if we, if we do end up staying, like we don't get an invite from the ACC or anyone else, you know, I'm, I'm starting to convince myself it's not going to be that bad. It's going to be no. fun football to watch. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the the old Big East with UConn and Rutgers and South Florida, Louisville, um, Pitt, I think, might have had a couple good years. Um, it was just so fun. Just, you know, unexpe- uh, unexpected upsets. There was some parity at the top. Um, mm-hmm. The bottom teams, you know, were a little bad. But, you know, it, it was a fun conference to play in. And a lot of the times you're playing for big stakes because, you know, we were one game away from playing in the national championship as a big East school. Um, right. Which, you know, that was awesome. And you always felt like you could win it. I mean, if we're being honest, if we're being realistic WVU fans. Most years we're coming in. We're not thinking we're going to win the big 12 because that goes to Oklahoma nearly every year. And so, um, you know, once we go to this new big 12 look, honestly, I am going to go in with expectations every year where, Hey, we could win this. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, the one thing too, that I've noticed with the, the big 12 conference since we've been in there is that our, our crowds aren't like what they used to be with the big East. So maybe if we can get 
in there and start having nine, 10 win seasons regularly against, you know, a little bit lesser competition. Maybe we'll start filling up the stadium and get, get it up to 66,000, 70,000 people again, standing room only um, night game against Oklahoma state or Houston or something like that. Get it loud. Um, those games were always a blast. I'm with you. And that's perfect transition into our next topic. So, Hey, I'm one of the guilty ones who wasn't able to go to the Iowa state game, trick or treating got in the way. Uh, me and Brandon, you know, we don't live 10 minutes down the road from Morgantown. It's, it's a drive. And so uh, I, I skipped out on the game to take my kid trick or treating, but uh, I want to encourage everyone who wasn't able to make it for maybe something like that, which is a good excuse show up this Saturday because on Saturday, not only is WVU honoring the military, but they are also retiring major Harris's number nine Jersey. Brandon and myself were a little too young to have watched Major play live. We were born during his playing days, but we started going to games in the late 90s, and we're WVU buffs. We've seen the highlights. We've read about those 80s West Virginia squads, and without question, he was a special player. He changed the way WVU fans saw the quarterback position, and I think Mountaineer greats such as Rashid Marshall and Pat White, they have Major Harris to thank for changing the quarterback position for excellent excellent athletes such as themselves. And so what are your thoughts on the great Major Harris? I mean, he, he was the only quarterback to lead West Virginia to a national championship game, and I think that says it all right there. Uh, I'm really disappointed. You know, I, 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 I'm a West Virginia history buff, so I always like reading back and kind of he left early to go pro. Um, I don't think he ended up getting drafted or if he was, he was really late, but you know, he never took off there. And I always think of, you know, what would have happened if he came to the league 10 years later or 20 years later, you mm-hmm. know, would he be someone like Lamar Jackson, because he was just that type of athlete. He could do everything. Um, he was before his time. So, um, it just changed the way defenses had to play them in a time when there wasn't, you know, a spread option, read option offense. There wasn't a, a West coast offense or, uh, or the West Coast offense was just starting with San Francisco, but there wasn't an air raid. So um, he was before his time, he was a, a one of one um, from the 80s. I mean, just incredible player. And he'll, he'll be, be forever rightfully um, immortalized at WVU because not only was he great, I think he got some Heisman votes and he took the team to a national championship. So you can't do much better than that. He did, yeah. And I think he was drafted. He was drafted by the Raiders. I forget in which round. I mean, it wasn't like a super high round pick. But, um, you know, his NFL career didn't pan out. But kind of like you said, he was before his time. The NFL wasn't really using quarterbacks the way they do nowadays. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was up for the Heisman, took us to a national championship, and got hurt, I believe, on the first drive. So, I mean, who knows? If, if he's healthy that whole game, he might be even more – immortalized by Mountaineer fans because who knows might have won a national championship so definitely show up Saturday not only to root for our current Mountaineers hopefully get another upset but be there for Major Harris as well absolutely all right um I got some quick hitters I want to ask Brandon because I didn't know where this would really fall into what we were how we were talking about stuff earlier so i just wanted to throw it in at the end so after jared daggy's performance how many snaps do you want garrett green to have versus oklahoma state it depends on how many plays were in the red zone i'm still 
in the camp where I would love to see green in the red zone, just because we still haven't seen anything um, from Deggy as being someone who can perform in the red zone. And that's fine. I mean, he's been incredible in between the twenties, the past couple games. So I can't complain at all about seeing him play 90% of the snaps, but I think in the red zone, even if you want to play Deggy in there some, that's fine. Cause I think he's earned it. I still think it makes sense instead of giving green the third drive, every drive, to put him in there on some red zone plays, um, especially against a good defense like Oklahoma State. I think it's worth taking that shot. Yeah, and I'm kind of with you that that it should depend. Uh, feel the flow of the game. Brandon Whedon brought up a great point watching that game last week. They put in Garrett Green when Jared Daigie was rolling, and so it just didn't make sense to play him when they did, even though that's been their MO, putting him in on the third drive. I say, you know, if you want play calls set up for him once he does go in, that's fine. But don't don't already predetermine when you're going to put him in the game. Kind of feel it out. Maybe Deggy starts the game off hot, but then stalls out a couple of drives. Put him in. See if he can give you a spark. I mean, that's that's why you play green. The kid can bust off a big run or a big play here and there. So, I mean, that's when you want to use him. So. I would agree with you. It, sh- it just all depends. I wouldn't mind seeing him in the red zone, but um, if Daggy's rolling, keep Daggy in there. You know? Can I get crazy and say maybe, uh, I know our receiving core is deep, but maybe throw green in there at the receiver some, throw him some screens, some end arounds. You think? Can, you know, go maybe. in there with a good play, reverse pass. Okay, okay, I could get behind that with the reverse pass or end arounds. I don't know if I want to see Green running routes out there. He's not a very big dude, and I'd be afraid he'd get his head taken off maybe. But you're, you're selling me on the trickery. I, I could get behind that. Yeah. Here's my next one. I only had two. After these last two games, has your opinion on Daggy coming back next year changed? <sighs> I don't know. I, I was thinking about this today, and that's really tough. I mean, part of me says, yeah, it'd be nice to have him back because he's showing what he has. He's showing progress and things are, are, are going better. Um, but part of me also doesn't want that for, for a couple of reasons. So one is we have Garrett Green. We have Goose Crowder. We have Nico coming in. Um, I would like to see one of those guys start young, you know, get, get in the ropes, not have to wait till they're a junior or a senior to play. Not that that would necessarily happen with – Deggy coming back one more year, but you know, I want, I want to see them play. Um, two is that, you know, I feel like Deggy, what we've seen the past couple games is better than what we've seen, but I still don't think, I, I don't know if he can do this all season. Um, if that makes sense. Like I, I think he can give you good stretches. I still think he's a good quarterback to have on this team this year, but next year, you know, I want the ceiling to be a little bit higher. And if his ceiling is seven wins, I want to see if we can put someone out there who can get us nine wins. I mean, I I kind of prefer the wild card versus the sure thing. So that's kind of my thought behind that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of with you as of right now. I I would have to see more. I mean, he's only had back to back killer games, but I mean, you're going to have to show me more than that to make me completely flip on my opinion. I mean, if he keeps this up for the remainder of the season, he he could change my mind, but I'm kind of with you. I would like to see one of the younger guys, see what they got, see what our future looks like. Who knows? We could be regretting that this time next year. But, uh, yeah, for right now, I would say my opinion hasn't changed. Uh, But who knows? Ask me again in December 
and I might have a different opinion. I don't know. And I think, too, the one thing that I'm kind of thinking of for next year, too, is not necessarily Garrett Green being quarterback, but I'm thinking Goose Crowder. I mean, we've only seen him throw a couple of passes, but he has real arm talent. And Mm -hmm. um, Coach Brown talks really highly about him every press conference. He says, you know, he's probably the best natural leader that we have. That's a freshman. Um, so you have someone with a great arm. You have someone who's a leader. You have someone who has a year to learn the playbook. I think that's a, a good recipe to have someone come in as a redshirt freshman, start, maybe take some lumps early on, but finish strong and, you know, be someone who has a much higher ceiling than Deggy. So I'm not necessarily looking for green next year. I, I'm probably, I'm a little bit more excited about Goose Crowder. Yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, Goose, I mean, we've barely seen him only in that LIU game for a little bit, but he seems to have a strong arm. Um, and every uh, I see a lot of fans saying Nika's going to come in and start. Trust me, I mean, every WVU fan would love that. But, I mean, how often do you see a, a true freshman come in and just take over the reins immediately? Um, I would not expect that. If he does, great. But, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, would, I, I could see Goose starting well before I could see Nico taking over next year. And that's entirely possible with Nico too, because, you know, with college quarterbacks, sometimes it's not the talent that wins out. It's just someone who's a gamer and can win games. And from seeing what Nico's doing in high school, he's just a gamer. Like he doesn't always throw for the most yards. He doesn't always throw for the most touchdown passes. Like that game they won against who was it? Uh, Sierra Canyon or whoever, that big powerhouse football school. Yeah. Where he came back oh. from 17 down. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not something ever anyone can do. And he got banged up. He ran the ball. He passed the ball. He got the offense set, stopped the clock. I mean, all those things are things that you want to see for a quarterback and he's in high school. So um, he, I, I definitely, definitely not counting him out, especially since he's just, he's just a baller. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with, you. he's a tough kid. Um, just unlikely. But like I said, I hope I'm wrong. I hope he comes in and he's you know, the next star. Uh, let's get into our good, our bad, and our hope for the week. So let's jump right into it. Uh, my good, Jared Dagey and Bryce Ford Wheaton. Dagey had a career-high 370 yards and three touchdowns. The kid has taken a lot of criticism this year, and he's never said a bad word about the crowd, about the fans on social media, about the press. The kid just does everything the right way, whether he has a good game or not. So high praise for Jared Dagey. The kid has incredible character. Also, props to Bryce Ford Wheaton. He's he had one of his he it was his best game all season. He broke 100 yards. He had two touchdowns. But also, props to him for making one of the best catches I've seen in a long time. That was an incredible touchdown catch he had in the third quarter. My bad. We kind of already touched on it. it. The only thing I could say bad about that game is the officiating. There were some bad calls on both teams Saturday. God knows we heard our fair share of Iowa State fans complaining on social media. But even that pass interference call on Bryce Ford Wheaton was terrible. Calls like that can change a game, and I know it's not an easy job. I don't want to hate on the officials too much because I know it's difficult, but they they take enough criticism, but that was just not not their best game. My hope, I hope the offense can keep performing at a high level. You, I mean, you can tell it alleviates the pressure on the defense. The first half of the season, the defense consistently faded in the second half because they were tired and, and putting too much pressure on themselves, it seemed like. And the offense controlling time and possession, putting points on the board, the defense seems to be getting stronger in the second half 
these last two games. So I hope the offense can keep playing at a high level. It changes the entire team. That, I like those. Those are good ones. Uh, my good, um, just to kind of spin off the offense, is the play calling. Um, I think the variation that we've shown is great because before, you, you know, before the bye week, you could kind of line up and say, okay, they're going to run a, a stop route here. They're going to run a slant here. They're going to dive up the middle. They're going to go three and out. Uh, and it just seemed like we were trying to do the same things over and over again. We tried to throw the ball deep and it would just be off target. Now we're getting a rhythm in things. We're, we're having an identity. We're running RPOs. Um, you know, we're confusing the defense by running more of a pistol so that we're showing less where Letty's going to run. We're pulling guards. We're running more power and less zone. We're doing a lot of different things. And it's it's working um, because it's keeping the defense on their heels and they can't guess anymore. So um, the play calling, whoever's calling, um, you know, Neil Brown, Parker, Sorocha, however you say his name, whoever it may be, kudos. Um, the bad, uh, my bad is just going to be that the big plays we gave up. We gave up three plays over 50 yards. Um, two of them went for touchdowns. Those are just things you have to clean up. The, the one was just, you know, a dive bit up on a play another one was because Mahone and Woods ran into each other which left a huge hole um another one x low chased him down and and you know finished the tackle but you know those are just little things where you know better communication figure out where you're supposed to be there are fixable issues and you know if you don't let one of those big plays then you win a little bit more comfortably but we still won so it's not as big of a deal, but I just don't want to lose a game because of a big play. Um, and my wish is, um, you know, I wish we keep on seeing the, the variation on, on offense. Um, I would love to see us continue to run the pistol. I think that's where running the ball we've done the most. Um, I think running the RPO is great, um, especially since Deggie's a really good decision maker. And, you know, it really opens up the run game for Letty. Um we're still running up the middle, which is the strong part of our offensive line. But, you know, running those sh quick, short, efficient passes, getting the ball to Letty, those are the two best traits of our offense. So keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, we are going to wrap this up. Um, late on Thursday, we'll do a preview for the Oklahoma State game. Um let me think. The Derek Culver interview is still up. If you haven't listened to it yet, please check that out. We're trying to get a, a few more guys to interview. We love interviewing um, former players, really anyone involved with Mountaineer sports. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah. Uh, make sure you check out our Twitter and Facebook pages. Give us a follow. Um, and then if you want to support the show, feel free to go into our bio, um, click the link and donate a few dollars to us. Um, you know, don't feel obliged to, but we're definitely not going to complain. Yeah. Yeah. Just look for us, the voice of Motown podcast on all your social media platforms. And thank you for listening. So for the voice of Motown podcast, I'm Tyler Peppy. I'm Brandon Cork. And thanks everyone for listening. Thanks guys.